Hey everybody, it's October 5th, yeah, it's October 5th, sorry, that was a question, not a statement, until it was a statement, uh, yeah, October 5th, we're doing games and news for Critical Diversions, um, speaking of that date, before we get into it, um, I realized the other day we're kind of coming up six weeks away still, I think, but we're still uh, coming up on the one-year anniversary of uh, Critical Diversions, the magazine that uh, we put out that most of the people that are actually listening to this podcast probably actually helped work on. Um, I'd like to do something special with it. I haven't thought too hard about it yet. My immediate thought was read some of the articles out loud on the podcast like it's their own segment um and not like back to back i don't think anyone wants me to do that um but maybe do five articles and then every week for five weeks up to the anniversary just read off one of the articles as part of um part of the celebration i guess i know that sounds kind of masturbatory and whatever but like sometimes you just want to celebrate stuff your friends the people you love the work you did that was cool um i'm still very proud of how that project turned out um and yeah just having some kind of debrief on it would also be fun i think um like i said i it defeats the purpose of having a magazine or a fanzine or e-zine fanzine e-zine game zine i don't know uh, defeats the purpose of having made that and all the art and layout work for it if I just read it all off, I think. So I don't want to do all 18 articles. Also, just the time <laughs> that would take would be insane. Um, I also, I, I don't know if that's going to happen yet. If I do do that, I would like to, I mean, for one, I wish I had a better mic. But secondly, I don't like I would like better acoustics and stuff for that. Like, would I just take the laptop into the bathroom with me and read it there, you know? Um, I'm not sure, but that's kind of my thought. I would like to do some kind of look back at that. Um, and yeah, I would do five specifically because there were five of us that wrote for it. And just one of each of our pieces, I think, is what we would do. Um, but yeah, not sure. That It's just something I'm thinking about in my head and I think would be fun. Uh, either way, maybe we'll do a full retrospective on our own work uh, as we get closer to the actual one-year anniversary of Critical Diversions. Let's talk about some games and, and some news, ostensibly. I really should have come up with a better name <laughs> for this show. I just, the first episode I did, I just did it on the fly and didn't want to sit down and think about a name. Whatever. Maybe we'll start giving the episodes titles or something. I don't know. Uh, I haven't played that much this week. Um, and most, In fact, I think all of these were on my list last week. Uh, Gunbrilla is the main thing I played this week. Um, I finished up my first playthrough of it. Uh, wasn't as hot on it as like Wilkins and Seth are. But because of that fact, because I trust their opinions in games so much and, and value their thoughts and I was wondering, like, huh, what did I miss? Uh, I immediately started a hard mode playthrough, and instantly I was like, oh, yeah. The combat in this game is way better than 
the normal difficulty mode would kind of lead you to believe like when you actually are kind of forced to engage in all the mechanics turns out when you actually play a game and use all the, th the tools available to you that it's fun um yeah i still am not i think as hot on it as the the others are but i i do like it a fair bit more now it's a pretty cool game um not gonna say anything more about it because we're doing a whole episode on it hopefully next week that's the that's the plan right now haven't set a date or anything for the meetup for that yet but uh, that's the plan so we should have a whole gunbrilla episode to tide you over next week hopefully hopefully uh Baldur's gate 3 continues to be fucking amazing um so the main way my wife and i are engaging with uh Baldur's gate 3 is with a co-op file with us she's playing i think i've mentioned this before but she's playing a githyanki drow or sorry a githyanki druid and i'm playing a um dragonborn monk because i'm a fucking dork um but you can't, when you make a co-op character, specifically when it's not on my PlayStation account, well, it is tied to my PlayStation account, but I didn't make the save file on my account. It's on my wife's account. I can't take my Dragonborn Monk and just, like, do stuff with him. Like, I can't pull him out, do stuff, and put him back in, which makes sense because then, like, he might get over, like, his level would be different and stuff, so I get it. Um... So, because of that, we have our own, like, single-player files. And my first single-player file that I have made is with a uh, drow or dark elf uh, paladin, which is neat in a dumb combination. Um, and then I was really wanting to make a halfling, and I was also really wanting to make a druid. So, I kind of thought, why not do a halfling druid? Because the idea of, like, a druid, a little dude, turning into a bear is pretty sick. Uh, so, I did that. Uh, the character, I accidentally made him look exactly like Mario. He kind of looks like a slightly more realistic render of Mario from the movie, specifically. Um, his name is Ronaldo Moon. And he's fucking great. Uh, the thing I really wanted to talk about is that... Uh, so, I've seen the beginning of this game play out like six times now. Like, between my our co-op file and my wife's characters and my characters... Like, we've done this beginning of the game quite a bit, and the main conflict in Act 1 of the game is there's a group of tieflings that are trying to get to Baldur's Gate, tieflings being a race of people, um, but they're being chased by goblins, and they had to find refuge in this, like, druid uh, grove, the Emerald Grove. Um, the leader of the druids went off to look for something with some adventurers. He is seemingly captured and... The druids are in the, the, the Emerald Grove is being ran by this other druid lady who seems like she is up to no fucking good and is trying to do a magic ritual to seal the grove off um, and she needs the tieflings gone or she will kill them because she doesn't want them there when the grove is sealed off. Um, so, like I said, we've seen this scenario play out like five times across all our characters, and each time it was like a little bit different. Some some differences were greater than other differences, if that makes sense. Uh, this run through, my drow picked up on like like he he had like a high history uh, stat, and he's a druid, so like he knows about druid shit. So couple that with the history. 
And he was like, hmm, this right of thorns that they're casting on this place is pretty bad. We should do something about it. We should look into this. Why, why is she doing this? We should look into her. There's this whole side thing you can go down where it turns out, I won't get too far into spoilers, but she, the, the druid lady, is uh, working with some shadow druids. Like, she's been manipulated by, like, an, like kind of like the, they're almost like an eco-terrorist version of druids. Like, they just want the world to be ruled by, like, plants and stuff. Um, so she's being manipulated by these shadow druids. None of the other druids know it. They're, all the other druids are like, yeah, this shit seems bad, but whatever. Um, so yeah, we confronted her with the fact that she's running with the wrong crew and we were able to convince her that that's not, she should change her ways. And we fought the shadow druids who were hiding as rats. She turned on them and we all fought together and we fucking slaughtered them. Um, had no idea you could do any of this. Um, again, I don't want to get too far into spoilers for anyone interested in playing it. But, uh, yeah, the other scenarios ended very differently than that. Um, seemingly, you would still... There's other things you could do. You could just kill all the druids there. You could uh, steal the, the, the relic they're using to cast the Rite of Thorns or whatever. It's amazing. I, I've never... I've probably said this in the other two episodes I've talked about this. We're probably just going to talk about Baldur's Gate 3 every week for a few years at this point. But... Um, I've never played a game that had like this many options and they all like felt significant and they all played out so differently. And um, my wife brought up the point that like she thinks basically anyone that likes video games should play this game. And I agree. Um, I know it's not this what I'm describing. If you don't know D&D terms, all this nerd bullshit, I know it sounds intimidating or like you inherently are just like, eh, it's not for me. But, like, I have never engaged with D&D stuff until now either, and this game fucking rules. Like, this might be the best game I've ever played, and I do not say that lightly. Um, and we're still only in Act 2 in our main file. It is fucking amazing. Uh, I came, when I was making, you know, as I play games throughout the week, I make brief little notes in my phone uh, about, like, things I want to talk about with with games or whatever, or news or whatever. Um, and my wife and I did this whole huge area, this super sick, like, monk monastery um, on our main file. And it's easily my favorite area of the game so far. And I'd written notes in my phone, like, talk about this when you do the games and news. Um, I didn't forget. I just... It's, I don't even want to talk about it now because all this Ronaldo Moon shit happened. Crazy. Uh, yeah, I would recommend this game to basically anyone. It is incredible shit. Um, I haven't felt this way in terms of thinking a game is like a universally appealing thing. I haven't thought about thought about a game like that since Hades, if that makes sense. Like Hades, weirdly, had something for everyone. I, I truly think Baldur's Gate has something for everyone from the combat being incredible RPG nerds are going to be in fucking heaven with the amount of like numbers and options you can engage with here. The dialogue and characters are probably the best I've ever experienced in a game. Please just play Baldur's Gate, please. I'd love to do a whole games club uh, podcast on it or a bonus one. It would be fucking amazing. 
just the different routes you can take through this game and the different shit you can do, the different trouble you can get into. Please, someone in this Discord play Baldur's Gate. I mean, I know Hunter is, but um, I don't know if he listens to these and I don't know if he's still playing Baldur's Gate, but please, just someone play fucking Baldur's Gate. Ah. Last game I want to talk about, and on the complete opposite end of the spectrum of the best game of all time, Kirby and the Amazing Mirror, uh, I mentioned it last week, came out on the uh, Game Boy Advance app on Nintendo Switch Online. Uh, I have said for years that Amazing Mirror is definitely the worst Kirby game. I always hope for a redemption tour. Uh, I remember when Mario 3D All-Stars was coming out, I was really hoping that you know, more people would be able to engage with Sunshine and, like, appreciate the things it does well. Um, because, truthfully, I think, like, there's, like, five hours of Mario Sunshine that's, like, maybe the best 3D Mario platforming period, but then it's just, like, 15 hours of garbage <laughs> that you get along with it. Um, Kirby and the Amazing Mirror doesn't have that. It, it does not have five hours of redeeming gameplay. <laughs> I don't know if it has like 20 minutes of redeeming gameplay. Um, yeah, I did. I was able to meet up with Seth and Eric. Uh, Seth from our Discord and then Eric being Seth's co-host on his podcast, All In. Um, we played, I, I want to say like an hour. It probably wasn't even an hour of multiplayer Kirby and the Amazing Mirror. So let me back up for a second, actually. For those who don't know, Kirby and the Amazing Mirror, like I said before, it's a GBA game from 2004. The thing that is notable about this is that it is up to four player with the link cable back then, uh, co-op Kirby, but it's not like all the other co-op Kirbys. Uh, you're not stuck to like the same screen as the other player. Like You can just go wherever you want. Um, the structure of Amazing Mirror, it is interesting. If there are redeeming things about Amazing Mirror, it's mostly that, like, on paper, there's a lot of cool shit here. Like, the broad strokes are interesting. Um, so it's, it's, some people describe it as, like, a follow-up to the Great Cave of, the Great Cave Offensive from Kirby Superstar, which was, like, a mini Metroidvania instead of Kirby Superstar. I disagree, uh, this is straight up like an open-world side-scrolling platformer Kirby game. Um, and again, in four-player or any multiplayer, like, y'all can just go in completely different directions. Like, once you go on, like, a couple different routes, which takes a couple minutes, um, you can just go in completely separate paths. Like, that is neat. Um, but that's about where the neatness ends because mostly, like, the navigation, like, both the map itself but also like the stage design is horrible there are so many like one-way doors and there's no warning there's no visual difference between the doors that are one way that will just lead you to a completely different area um and and doors that you can go back through there's there, there's no indication of basically anything you're just going into rooms there's a bunch of fucking enemies. You might find a door that takes you a place you haven't gone. You might find like three doors that take you places you haven't gone. You might find a bunch of doors that are places you have gone down. And the stage design is so nondescript that you have no fucking idea <laughs> that you've been down that those paths before, through those doors before. Um, it is complete fucking nonsense. Uh, it's just bad. 
Uh, <laughs> I, and I, I want to emphasize, like, if I was playing this back in 2004 and it wasn't, like, online multiplayer, like, if, if it was me and some friends back in middle school spending the night at each other's house, just playing Kirby with our link cables and eating pizza or whatever, there, there's something good here. At least if you were playing this back in 2004. I don't think there's basically anything redeeming here. And this is coming from me, who is, I think, the biggest Kirby nut that I know, at least. Um, I love, like, I love a lot of, like, the free-to-play spin-off Kirby games on the eShop. And most of those, you know, not, not most, all of them are better than this. Um, so, yeah, from one Kirby nut to another, if you want to get your Kirby nut, go get it somewhere else. Holy shit, that's the worst thing I've ever said. Um, that's the nice thing about the Switch, though, is if, if you want to play a Kirby game, a, a good Kirby game, one that is not Amazing Mirror, you have so many fucking options. Um, even just with Forgotten Land and Return of the Dreamland Deluxe, those are, like, two of the three best Kirby games. So, just fucking play those. Um, you know, I would assume Kirby Nightmare in Dreamland will come to the GBA app at some point, which is a remake of Adventure, which Adventure is already on the NES app, and there's like five Super Nintendo Kirby games on the Super Nintendo app. Uh, Kirby Dreamland 1 and 2 are on the Game Boy app. Even Kirby 64, which is not a very good Kirby game either, is way better than this. Um, just don't bother. Even if you're you're horrified by the thing I just said about Kirby Nut, just please don't don't bother with it. Play anything, play anything else. Um, I think I said it last week, but the game visually it does look very good. I think the GBA and DS era of Kirby games have very good looking sprites, very very cute and good. The music is fantastic. It's still not worth playing. Don't don't do it. But yeah. I think that's all the lambasting of Kirby and the Amazing Mirror we gotta do today. It sucks that the first time I really get to talk about Kirby in any significant capacity, it's Amazing Mirror. Let's talk about some Castlevania Nocturne for a bit. Um, I know it's not a game. I guess it's kind of news. Castlevania Nocturne, for those who don't know, is basically just the fifth season of the Castlevania Netflix show. I believe it's the same production company. I know, like, the head writer turned out to be a sex pest, so they had to replace stuff on that front, get different people in on that front. But the quality is still just as high, if not better. Um, The art style is different in a good way, at least for me. It looks... It's a very nice middle ground between the kind of ugly-looking Nickelodeon-esque look of the, the first four seasons of Castlevania... Uh, it, it's in between that and like how the Symphony of the Night artwork looks. I forget who the artist of that is. I know it's a lady, Ko- Kojima maybe. I forget her whole name. I'm not sure. And I, I apologize. I should look that up. Uh, it's a really nice middle ground because you could never make um, a show with the Symphony of the Night art style <laughs> with a Netflix animated show budget. You know. Um, but yeah, you know, I am a huge Castlevania dork. I'm not going to say Castlevania nut after what happened with the Kirby thing. Um, I think Castlevania Nocturne 
is better than the first four seasons of the Netflix show, and I already liked that those seasons a lot. Um, it has a better balance of like uh, talking to action, which the talking and the politics among the vampires is what <laughs> makes Castlevania good. The the anime, not the show. I'm sorry. I know it's not an anime, but for my purposes, I'll probably just call it an anime. But to me, that is what made the show special. I know some people didn't like that shit, but I always wanted to know, what the fuck would you do? <laughs> How do you make a Castlevania show and not do something like that? There is basically no plot in the old games besides we gotta hunt Dracula, you know? Uh, I think the only real problem I have with storyline-wise with the first four seasons is they never fit Grant Dynasty in there anywhere. Uh, we had, you know, we had Trevor and Sifa and Alucard. Where the, where the fuck is Grant Dynasty, everybody? Come on! Uh, Castlevania Nocturne. It's eight episodes, so I don't know, was that turn out into like four hours? Even less, probably. I watched it all in one sitting. I haven't done that with a show in like a decade. It was fantastic. I really liked it. Um, it it's a, like I said, there's less vampire politics. There is still some of that, and it's good. It's it's not as good as the the previous seasons, but it's it's not the focus. The focus is much more like personal. Um, it's set 300 years after the previous season, um, so it's set in like the 1700s during like French Revolution stuff, uh, which is a great time period to be doing vampire drama shit um yeah i don't know i from the trailers i didn't like richter's like voice sounding so young but yeah he is pretty young here i think he's like a teenager still um and also he goes through a lot of growth much more like front and center and i think more satisfying growth than trevor goes through in the previous seasons uh it fucking ruled man i watched the whole like i said i watched the whole thing in one sitting I don't ever do that with shows. Uh, some of the best action scenes in the business. That makes me sound like some weird, weird, I don't know, slick car salesman or something. But best action scenes in the business. Um, in episode six, uh, has it has the best um, like power boost for the main character who then goes on to kill... All of the jobber enemies. Probably the best one of those I've seen since Cell. Or since Gohan went Super Saiyan 2 and killed all the Cell Juniors. Whew, I know this is a really dorky podcast already. It's going to get way worse when we get to Final Fantasy 7 stuff. Oh, I didn't say that. We're doing a different show format today. After the news, we're going to get into just a whole dedicated thing about Final Fantasy 7 at the request of Jim. So... Get ready for that. Uh, Castlevania Nocturne. I, you don't need to see the previous seasons to enjoy it. Um, there is fan servicey stuff, both for fans of the show and the games. Uh, I don't consider this too much of a spoiler because I feel like people don't give a shit about this character. Just Belmont shows up from um, Harmony of Dissonance, which I personally, I know Jim disagrees, I think is a pretty damn good Castlevania game. It's at least underrated. Um, but old man version of Juice shows up and is Richter's grandfather and very, very fun. Um, it was just great. The only real problem I have with it is the ending and I can't get super into it 
because of spoiler stuff. Um, it just, it feels like part one. Like, it feels like, hey, we're not done yet, but now you got to wait, like, at least a year kind of thing. Um, I didn't mind it in, you know, Across the Spider-Verse. Maybe because I, I guess because I knew. But also with Across the Spider-Verse, I don't know, that felt like a good cliffhanger to me. I don't know, I was kind of upset at the specific spot with this cliffhanger and what happens, but again, I don't want to get into it. Um, yeah, I, I would just recommend you watch it. If you have Netflix and you want like a fun animated show, this is pretty good. It's much, like I said, much more straight to the point and less political, well, less vampire political. Who's trying to take away the vampire's rights? We're letting vampires sign up for the army now? It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Old Rocks. I'm sorry. Castlevania Nocturne. It's good. I'm just going to keep saying Castlevania Nocturne. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about before we get into the news, uh, I did watch the new Ninja Turtles movie, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, Mutant Mayhem, I think. Um, you know, I know that's just a movie, like it doesn't have anything to do with the game specifically. Um, I think it's worth talking about just from the perspective of more than any other like non-video game series, I feel like Ninja Turtles is more tied to video games than any, like more so than like Batman or Spider-Man or whatever. Um, and I think that's really interesting. It's worth talking about, I think. I don't know if this is going to be the spot where I really dive into that, but, you know, I assume it's because Ninja Turtles were growing in popularity right when, you know, video games were really coming back after the Atari days. And, you know, Ninja Turtles on NES, uh, one of the best-selling games on the NES, somehow. <laughs> you know, I, I played... Uh, a, a fair bit of the first NES game on that Ninja Turtles collection that came out last year. Actually, not that bad. Uh, again, much like Kirby in the Amazing Mirror, it has some navigation issues. But uh, it's not that bad. Don't listen to the dumb, angry video game nerd shit. It's not that bad. It's interesting. Anyway, um, yeah, I thought Mutant Mayhem was okay. I'd even, you know, I'd even go so far as say it was decent. Um, it was definitely, you know, it feels like a movie made post into the Spider-Verse. Um, not just visually, but I don't know. It, it feels like it, it, it's trying to hit a lot of the same notes. And I don't just mean from like a writing perspective, but uh, I don't know, tonally and humor wise and stuff. The humor was pretty missed for me. I do agree that the, the constant callbacks to the being milked, that was very good. It genuinely was very funny and had a very good payoff. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it, did, it just didn't do much for me, and that's fine. Like, a thing called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles doesn't need to appeal to a 33-year-old man. It's fine, I guess. Um, the main thing I really liked about it um, was the fight scene, the one Splinter fight scene. Uh, for those who don't know, Splinter is voiced by Jackie Chan in this movie. And the one time Splinter has an action scene in this movie, it, it looks and, and it's choreographed out like a, like a live action Jackie Chan movie from like 30 years ago in that, 
it looks very like improvisational and like you know splinter's getting punched and kicked as he goes but he's still going and he's grabbing things off walls and like put kicking chairs at people and stuff and it it very obviously was a callback to Jackie Chan's previous work which for one is really good uh and two made me and my wife watch uh Rumble in the Bronx yesterday hadn't watched that movie in like 20 years that movie fucking rules uh that scene where Jackie Chan just fights a bunch of dudes in a refrigerator factory or whatever I know it's not a refrigerator factory but it's like weird punk hangout spot that for some reason has 30 refrigerators I don't know uh maybe the best live action like fight scene I've ever seen he's beating dudes up with fridges not even mini fridges just full-on fridges incredible um yeah ninja turtles yeah it was, it was good um i liked it more than like the mario movie so take that for what it's worth i guess in terms of like you know big kids movies that came out this year um yeah it was fun you know i, I think for me i don't know what i really want out of ninja turtles anymore in and and that's fine because again it's not for me um in much the same way that like i grew up with like Spider-Man as like my favorite thing up until like we got a Super Nintendo. Like Ninja Turtles were that was my first big thing, even before Spider-Man. Um fucking loved the Ninja Turtles to the point where like my parents, like my dad was buying the the comic books for me. That it's interesting because like my parents didn't try and like get me into their interests when I was a kid. It's like they pivoted their interests towards mine. So, like, my dad, yeah, was buying me the comic books when I was, like, four, uh, which is very stupid. <laughs> For those who don't know, the original Ninja Turtles comic books are, like, a send-up of, like, 80s-era uh, Daredevil, which are extremely violent. There's, like, decapitations and, like, limbs being cut off and murder and slaughter and... There's bad stuff going on in those Ninja Turtles comics back then. Um, actually, now that I think about it, yeah, and so my dad pivoted his comic collecting towards Ninja Turtles stuff for my sake, and then my mom uh, loved shopping. That's not that's not me trying to be sexist and weird. My mom just liked shopping and getting things, and um, so she just bought like a whole fuck ton of toys. I had an entire wicker chest. You could fit like a fucking body in that thing. Uh, it was just full of Ninja Turtles toys. It was, I had multiple toy containers, but that was the biggest, and it was just Ninja Turtles stuff in it. It was crazy. Um, also, my mom makes the claim... Well, hold on. Let me back up for a second. So, if you weren't around back then, or... What you didn't, you weren't paying attention to Ninja Turtles toys because you're older or whatever, or you, you had better things to do. I get it. Uh, you know, Ninja Turtles were like the hottest things on the planet, and so they just kept making new gimmicky Ninja Turtles, right? So, like, I specifically remember there was like a Halloween or like Universal Monsters Ninja Turtles set. So, like, I think it was Raphael they made into like the mummy. Leonardo was like the swamp thing. Michelangelo was uh, 
uh, Frankenstein monster. Some Donatello, I guess, would have been Dracula. Just dumb shit like that. Like, hey, we're we're just gonna tie Ninja Turtles into whatever the fuck we can and just keep making a bunch of dumb plastic things to sell to people. Uh, my mom, she loves telling this story. Uh, that she was so obsessed with finding new Ninja Turtles toys to buy me that she started dreaming about them. And she would dream of Ninja Turtles toys. And specifically, not that she was finding ones that she was specifically looking for, but that she was creating new ones in her dreams. Like like she was dreaming up new Ninja Turtles toys to buy. Uh, and she loves specifically to say there was a set of like, uh, you know, Wild West Turtles or whatever. And so, like, I think Raphael was, like, a cowboy and, like, Donatello was a Native American or whatever. I don't know what the other two would have been. Maybe someone was a horse Ninja Turtle. I don't fucking know. Um, and, and she, my mom, to this day, makes the claim that she dreamed up a cowboy and Native American Ninja Turtle before they existed. Which if you think about it, is really fucked up. I really want to sit in the silence and really think about the idea that my mom was dreaming, not just dreaming about cowboy Native American teenage mutant ninja turtles, but that she was dreaming about cowboy Native American teenage mutant ninja turtles toys that she could buy. And then she would wake up and be disappointed. That they didn't exist. But then one day she goes to the store and they do exist. Jesus. Fuck. Mutant Mayhem. It was alright. It was good. I'm probably never going to watch it again, but it was good. Let's talk about some news. And then we'll take a break. Um, I don't have that many uh, pieces of news to talk about today. There just wasn't that much I really wanted to get into. Uh, I guess I've never even said this on the show. I just talk about what I want to talk about. We're not going to cover every piece of, of news. It's boring. Who the fuck cares? Anyone can go read this if you want. But if I have something I want to say about a certain piece of news that happened in the week, we're going to talk about it. Uh, specifically, I this first one I have is uh, contractor layoffs at Naughty Dog. For those who don't know, Naughty Dog is the developer of the Uncharted and Last of Us games over at PlayStation. Um, this kind of ties in a little bit to the story we had last week about um, Jim Ryan stepping down as president of PlayStation. Uh, I have a Kotaku article up. I think I just want to read... Yeah, I'm just going to read aloud some of this. So again, this is about uh, Naughty Dog layoffs. Sources tell Kotaku that no severance is being offered for those currently laid off and that impacted developers as well as remaining employees are being pressured to keep the news quiet. Their contracts won't be officially terminated until the end of October and they'll be expected to work through the rest of the month. Sony did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Despite hit ratings for the recent HBO adaptation of The Last of Us, a multiplayer spinoff for the zombie shooter based on the first game's factions mode has struggled in development. Bloomberg reported in June that Sony had diverted resources away from the project following a negative internal review by Bungie, the recently acquired live service powerhouse behind Destiny 2. One source now tells Kotaku that the multiplayer game, while not completely cancelled, is basically on ice at this point. 
The layoffs also come just a few months after the studio co-president, Evan Wells, announced his retirement at the end of 2023 after working at Naughty Dog for 19 years. Neil Druckmann, creative director and lead co-writer on both the most recent Uncharted and The Last of Us games, as well as a contributor to the HBO show, revealed a restructuring of the studio leadership around the same time. Uh, I'm going to skip to the very last sentence here because I think it's Kotaku does a good job of underlining the point here. Uh, Here's the last line. Back in April, Sony announced that it plans to sell a record-breaking 25 million PS5s in the current fiscal year. So, like I said, I don't always want to talk about every single layoff thing because for one, it feels like we'd be talking about that every single week. And what can I really say that other people haven't said and that even I haven't said already? We talked about layoffs a lot last week, too. Uh, the reason I specifically brought this up was a couple of things. It ties into the Jim Ryan thing of I, I was too tired to fully express my thoughts last week. I guess that's why I do what, what I get for recording a podcast at five in the morning. But Jim Ryan really heavily invested into uh, trying to make these live service games or games as a service games. And I think it's a mistake. And if you were to ask me, not, I didn't get into it, but I think Jim Ryan said last week that uh, him stepping down is because he lives in Europe, but he has had to work in North America. And that, that's sure. I agree. That's, that's dumb and bad. And I get it. However, <laughs> I don't fully believe with all the shit that seems to be going on with PlayStation right now, it feels like the timing is not a coincidence. Um, for one, why does Bungie get to be the arbiter of like live service games? You know, I understand that Destiny 2 is probably the most successful live service game besides Fortnite at this point, right? Maybe there's some like mobile thing I'm not aware of. Or Roblox, I don't, does Roblox count as live service? I don't fucking know. I guess with like a, a core gamer crowd, Destiny, Destiny 2 is probably the most successful live service game besides Fortnite. I, I think it's fair. Certainly it's up there if it's not number two. Um, but it feels like Bungie is fucking putting out fires with Destiny 2 shit like every month. Um, it feels like they were kind of able to brute force that game through. Again, I played Destiny 2 at launch. That game had fucking nothing going on. Uh, had cool ideas and the shooting felt good, but it had fucking nothing besides that. Uh, within the first couple weeks, it had like a completely fucking broken gun uh, that everyone was just using in the PvP because it was busted nonsense. Now, it was fun. It was the only time I had fun with the Destiny 2 PvP, but... Uh, it was just a bunch of fucking nonsense. So, I don't know. I find it hard to believe, you know, The Last of Us and Uncharted games have had multiplayer in the past. I've never engaged with them. I've never been interested. I have played the single-player games. Well, I still haven't played The Last of Us 2 yet, but I have played and enjoyed Uncharted 1, 2, 3. Uh, what was the, the Lost Legacy? Is that what the other one was called? I've played, I've played the fucking Vita Uncharted, and I've played Last of Us 1. They're all decent games, um, and I hear people really the people that have engaged with the multiplayer in those games say that it's good, and that factions from Last of Us in particular was good. Um, I find it hard to believe that Naughty Dog 
couldn't put out another decent multiplayer Last of Us thing. Um, my hunch is that, again, this was being made as like its own thing. It wasn't being made as a mode within The Last of Us 2. So they were probably feeling pressure to, I don't know, broaden and expand the scope of it and the budget of it and whatever. Um, and again, with Sony, I don't know if it was ever confirmed. Well, maybe I should have well, I already closed the article. But anyway, I'm assuming that this Last of Us multiplayer thing was also going to be a live service game. So is it just like this game is being canceled because they can't find a way to like monetize it appealingly to people? I mean, that would make sense. Sorry, it um, looks like my microphone went bleh right there. Uh, it would make sense in the sense that, uh, you know, The Last of Us takes place in like a shitty post-apocalyptic zombie world and that there wouldn't be, you know, you can't find, uh, you can't create as many appealing cool helmets and jackets and shit that people want that doesn't break like the fiction and stuff. And I'm sure, I don't know, Naughty Dog seems like the kind of company that would be like, well, yeah, we, we can't, we can't compromise our creative vision we're not going to put in like a studded thriller jacket at halloween you know maybe they would again i have never played their multiplayer modes before but um again maybe it was shit i don't know i could be wrong about this but i also just feel like i don't know i i don't like this live service emphasis and i think PlayStation investing as heavily as they are into the live service space is a huge fucking mistake when that shit seems like it's on a downward trend. When even Fortnite uh, developer Epic is having to lay off fucking nearly a thousand people or whatever the fuck the number was. Seems like this maybe isn't the space you want to be getting into right now. Uh, you know, five years ago, sure, Fortnite was on top of the world. But hey, you know what else is on top of the world back then? Fucking PUBG. Who the fuck talks about PUBG anymore? You know, actually, in my experience, it seems like Fortnite is not nearly as popular outside of America. Maybe in Japan, I'm not sure what it's like there. But in Europe, Fortnite doesn't seem that big over here. Very anecdotal. Um, but I, I have heard other things about Fortnite's popularity not being nearly as big in non-English speaking countries or whatever. Um, yeah, I... I think Jim Ryan made a lot of mistakes with PlayStation. And if even like your premier studio, like their multiplayer game is getting effectively canceled or at least put on ice, that's not a good reflection on leadership. You know, again, I know Jim Ryan isn't like handling the day to day management of a game studio. I, I completely understand that, but he does set the tenor for the whole company, you know, and, and, Whatever. Uh, all of that said, yeah, this is expected. It's also, it's it sounds like it was mostly the Q&A department, uh, which, yeah, it sounds like they probably don't have any Q&A to do, <laughs> you know, if the game is canceled or whatever. So it's very unfortunate, and it is shocking that, again, that a Naughty Dog game is being put on ice, considering how much reverence fans and uh playstation itself seems to have so again maybe it really was horrible i don't fucking know i have doubts but maybe it's true maybe all this is, I, I should take this at face value and again this is not, not confirmed anyway but 
I guess I just have an axe to grind against Bungie. I really think Destiny 2 is not very good, but whatever. Um, I think that's all I wanted to say about any of that. It's just, it's weird. I really, I, I hope PlayStation able to turn around. You know what else fucking sucks? And that Jim Ryan is, was, was seemingly spearheading, like, all this, who bought a PSVR 2? And I say that as someone that owned a PSVR 1 and, and liked it for what it was, but, like, who... Who is buying this? I mean, apparently no one. You can't anyway. They don't even fucking sell them at stores for the most part. I think you can buy them at Best Buys in America now or something. The PlayStation Portal. If you don't know what the PlayStation Portal is, for one, I don't blame you. There's no reason to bother knowing what it is. But I'm going to tell you. It's just a remote device exclusively for your PS5 that costs like fucking $300. You also need to own a PS5. It just remote streams over Wi-Fi your PS5 to this this screen that has that's in the middle of a PlayStation controller. Now, if this was like a Wii U gamepad scenario and it broadcasted over like Bluetooth and I could, you know, play Elden Ring or Baldur's Gate in handheld in bed with no leg, yeah, that okay, that I would pay three hundred dollars for. Who who wants to play over like a shitty Wi-Fi connection, I, I I don't know who is this for, and and for that price, um, I understand there there are use cases. I understand that people have families and and what and whatever, and that the TV isn't always available. Um, to that, I would say you, you for one, it's less expensive to just buy a second TV or a third or whatever TV. Um. I just don't see who this is for. Again, I know there are people that use it. I know there are probably some people that are excited. I don't know why you'd be excited about this shit. Maybe my remote play experience has been unfortunate. I tried it a couple times on my phone and on my Chromebook. Uh, yeah, it sucked. <laughs> like, even when I was right next to the PlayStation, it wasn't good. Um, I just don't know who all this is for. Uh, again, I understand Jim Ryan isn't the one making all of these minute decisions, but he certainly, either he or someone directly under him signed off on, yeah, let's make a fucking remote play device for $300 and not sell it in stores. But also hype it up as if it's like this big, it's going to be a pillar of our business. Like, ah, okay. Whatever. I don't want to talk about Jim Ryan anymore. Dude sucks. He was not like a super inspiring person to lead a whole brand, I guess. I don't know. Uh, speaking of like disappointing live service related things, Diablo 4, season 2, I think it's Season of Blood. Uh, they had a big stream for that last night. I didn't watch it. I don't, I don't care that much. Uh, this is... Mostly, I just want to take an opportunity to talk about Diablo 4. I haven't gotten to talk about it much. We talked about it a little bit on our, like, midway through the year podcast. I think Hunter brought it up. Um, what are they doing? What are they doing with Diablo 4? Um, you know, I my wife and I played the fuck out of Diablo 4 over the summer. Like, that came out in, what, June, I think? we Like, June and July, we played a lot of Diablo. We played a decent chunk of season one. I think I think we, we definitely beat the story on our main on our first characters. And I think we beat the story or whatever. We we 
we got through like the main shit on our seasonal characters. Um, I know you can turn the story off, but it's just like a way it's, it's, it's it gives you a context to play the game. So that's what we did. Um, I, I don't understand the point of these seasons at, the, at, at this point. Uh, so for those who don't know, with Diablo 3 and 4, and even in the remaster 2, they added this concept of seasons where like, hey, each season of the game, like we're adding new stuff that you can only access by making a new seasonal character. That I'm fine with. Like, yeah, there's enough, you know, build options to where, yeah, it. Like, I had fun making a new character on Diablo 4 for the season. That I had no problem with that, but all they really amounted to, the new shit in, in season one was like, uh, like these, these malicious, like, uh, pus balls. And you, you, you stick the pus balls, you socket them into like your necklace and your boots and they, they're malignant pus balls. I don't know why I keep saying pus balls, but so like, yeah, they, they give you unique powers or whatever. Um, but like, so my understanding is when the season is over, your seasonal character, it doesn't get deleted like some people thought, but it gets sent over to, uh, the, the eternal realm or whatever. But I think your, your, your pus balls, uh, don't. So, well, what was the fucking point of this? That, that's what's confusing to me. Uh, I, I suppose it's like to avoid power creep or whatever, since your, your other eternal characters can't do that season. Um, but so then what, why would I play the season of blood? There's even vampires here and vampires are way fucking cooler than pus balls. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, you know what game you can play with vampires and no pus balls? Baldur's Gate 3. Asterion is one of the best characters. And if you want, he can turn you into a vampire. You know, I take that back. There are probably pus balls in, Dark, in uh, Baldur's Gate 3. My bad. But there are also vampires, and it's cool. Um, yeah, I don't know. Diablo 4 it just feels like a game that it came out. And it needed like at least another year for them to like sort out what the fuck they were doing, because this is also it, it. It is meant to be like a live service game. It's not exactly the same as like Fortnite or whatever, but you know it is like a full price game. But they also have season passes that you have to pay money for. There is nothing worth paying money for in that first season pass. And you could tell they were in trouble right from the get-go because they announced season two like within a couple weeks of season one coming out. People were already that pissed off. Uh, I don't know, man. Like, I hadn't really engaged with Diablo previously. I had played like less than 10 hours of three. I kind of I thought it sucked. Um, I did get like a, I probably not a hundred hours out of Diablo Four, but a lot. Me and my wife played the fuck out of it in co-op, and it was a great co-op game. That's why we played it so much because it was just a really good and fun and easy to engage with couch co-op thing, and it was also fun playing online. I played with Colin one time; it was cool. Me and my wife played with Seth; that was also cool from the perspective of yeah, you could combine couch and online co-op. Um, it that. From that perspective, yeah, it's cool, but like 
if I look at this objectively as a game, like this shit's fucking nonsense. I can't even go so far as say cotton candy. It's, it, I don't know what it. It's almost like flavored dirt. <laughs> okay, that, that's going too far. But th- the point is, I don't know that there's just nothing really here. Um, and especially with this season, like yeah, it was fun to go through the story once, especially playing it mostly in co-op with my wife. But there was just not nearly enough new shit in the season to make it worthwhile. Uh, you know, you can level up to level 100 in Diablo. We didn't come anywhere close, and it was just boring. Um, you know, there's other games, too, that are meant to be, like, long-term experiences. Uh, for instance, it was funny, my wife this morning, out of nowhere, was like, you know what I'm in the mood for lately? Monster Hunter Rise. Which, we yeah, her and I are huge Monster Hunter dorks. Uh, we put, like, over, I think over, sorry, there's an ambulance. Uh, I think we put over 700 hours into Monster Hunter Rise and Sunbreak. And then, yeah, all this other, like, Zelda and Diablo and Final Fantasy 16 and now Baldur's Gate. All this shit came out, and we haven't had time to, like, get, check out the last update to Rise. Um, but it still has, like, been in the back of my head. And, and my wife, too, clearly, she verbalized it. Um, and yeah, now I'm in the mood to play Monster Hunter Rise, <laughs> whereas you know, Diablo 4 is putting out information on their vampire season and all this shit. I don't care. Um, I would go so far as to say I think Diablo 4 is like maybe a bad video game. It's like, again, a game I had a lot of fun with and like it visually it looks amazing. I love how it looks like a diorama set and stuff, but yeah, I I don't think I could ever recommend someone pay $60 for this thing, let alone fucking like 120 or whatever the deluxe version costs. I don't know. I don't know. It's, uh, you know, I wouldn't have bought Diablo 4 in the first place. I wouldn't have bought it on my own, but my wife was very excited. She watched a streamer play a little bit of the, the PC beta, and then I think the next weekend there was the, the console beta or whatever. But yeah, I downloaded that for her. She was in love immediately. I think she got more enjoyment out of it than I did, but she also says the same thing of like, yeah, I have, she has no desire to go back and revisit maybe down the road when there's more characters or not characters, but classes. Um, but who knows when that's going to be certainly not in probably for at least another year, I assume. But yeah, I don't know. know, I, I played a lot of good games this year. Really, really fucking good games. Played some disappointers this year too. And, uh, Diablo 4 might be the number one on that list. Uh, again, had a lot of fun with it. I'm not trying to take anything away. It's, it's the classic thing of like the Steam review of like, this game sucks. Zero stars. Played 300 hours of it. It's kind of like that, but like, I don't know. It was fun at the, in the moment. Fun couch co-op thing. But if you don't have anyone to play co-op with, there's no, don't play this game. It's bad. Please. Please, God. Lastly, um, Animal Crossing Lego sets. Nothing to really add to that except that that's fucking cool. Um, yeah, it looked great. Uh, I like that they're doing seemingly uh, just traditional Lego sets for this. Um, I think the Mario stuff, the Mario Lego stuff is really damn cool. But um, I don't know, it doesn't... like. It's really cool if you're a kid or have kids that want to play with the Mario Legos. 
from like a collector standpoint or just someone that like wants cool shit. I don't know. They, they never interested me from that perspective. I do think the the main Mario Lego figure is cute and my wife owns it and it's cool that you can turn it on and his weird creepy eyes turn on and blink around and talk and whatever. But I'm just glad that they're doing like a traditional thing for the Animal Crossing Legos. I'm much more interested in Animal Crossing Legos than Mario Legos, frankly, or much more interested in Animal Crossing Legos than like Zelda Legos or whatever too. Um, yeah, nothing to really add here. It just, it popped up literally as I was like making notes for the show and it looks great. I'm very excited to see what my wife thinks about it. I sent it to her over text. She should be going on break at work pretty soon. Uh, but yeah, it's good. Speaking of break, maybe let's do one of those. Um, after the break, we are going to talk about Final Fantasy VII. Not just the original PlayStation 1 game, but the entire series. Because Jim, in the Discord, requested... Well, I think he requested just for me to go over all the different Final Fantasy VII games. We're going to get fucking into it. We're going to talk about real deep shit here, okay? This probably isn't going to be clarification for anyone. If anything, it is probably just going to be more confusing. But that's what we're here for. Critical diversion. Okay, see you on the other side of the break. noodles feeling less hungry talk to my wife update on the animal crossing lego uh she got back to me about it and she has deemed that they are good so you heard it here first critical diversions animal crossing lego they're pretty good let's get into this final fantasy 7 stuff right um uh, just warning off the top there's, we're going to dive into spoilers all over the place for probably... If, if you don't want to be spoiled on anything in Final Fantasy VII, just, just get out now. Um, I'm talking from the original game, every spinoff, we're going to talk about whatever. Um, and before we get into it, let me just read off specifically what Jim was asking for. Um, because I want to warn Jim also that I don't think I'm going to give him what he wants exactly, at least not till the end. But let me just read this off. This is Jim saying this at 5 in the morning, my time. 
If you want to make a podcast where y'all explain the like nine different Final Fantasy VII titles, I'm available. So, I think, and Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, that Jim is asking me to just clarify like what is Final Fantasy VII Remake and Rebirth, and maybe he's thinking about the Crisis Core remaster that came out last year. I will do that. I will give a succinct summary at the very end, but I kind of just want to use this as an excuse to talk about Final Fantasy VII in general and where they're going with like Rebirth and whatever the third game in the remake trilogy is. So let's briefly just go over Final Fantasy VII, the original. Um, it was a 1997 JRPG. Um, it was kind of the first JRPG that really was like a breakout hit outside of Japan. Uh, that's largely on the back of the cutscenes being used um, in commercials and stuff. Uh, if you've never seen them or don't remember, look up like some North American Final Fantasy VII commercials. It's pretty wild. Like they're really trying to hammer home like the the cinematic nature of it. Like I. They get, like, a movie voice-sounding guy to narrate it. Maybe it even is the movie voice guy. I don't know. It's been a while since I watched them. But, like, they're really trying to sell you on, like, um, the, the the story of love and heartbreak. And it's only viewable on your PlayStation. Um, and, yeah, it, there's no gameplay. There's no... You don't see any of the battles. You don't see any of the overworld. Anything. It is just scenes from the cutscenes. Including, I think, Aerith being murdered. Um, which is wild to think about. Um, but yeah, look those up if you're interested. They're, it's a neat throwback to like that era of game marketing. And this is kind of bringing in or ushering in a new era of game marketing. Um, I remember, I don't know what movie it was. I went to go see a movie in probably 1997 or 98 with my family. They played a Final Fantasy VII commercial like in the trailer section of the of whatever movie we were in. Uh, so pretty wild. Um, a thing to really keep in mind before we delve in, and before we're not going to get to remake for probably a few hours, but um, a big part of why there is such a demand for a Final Fantasy VII remake, as alluded to in talking about the commercials, the game outside of... Well, okay. The game looks like shit. <laughs> I was going to say the game outside of the cutscenes look like shit, but nowadays the cutscenes also don't look good anyway. But um, I think a lot of this is kind of forgotten to time. Like, you know, the, the narrative is just like, yeah, Final Fantasy VII came out. It was a huge hit. Everyone loved it. The end. Uh, no, I remember, even as a small child, I got this game for Christmas in 1997. Um people around me were very confused. Like they, like my mom was watching me play and she couldn't believe like the graphics on this, this opening cutscene, And then all of a sudden like this chibi half melted Lego block cloud jumps out and she's like, what the fuck is this? There's reading in this? Like what? Um, you know, it was a huge breakout hit in America, but that was largely just because of, of the, the CG cutscenes. Um, you know, this game sold, I think, I don't know how many, like 17 million copies or something, which is crazy. And I'm sure it made a lot of people who had never played JRPGs before fans of the genre and like fans that stuck around and checked out other Final Fantasy games and so on and so forth. But I bet you a lot of those sales were probably later returned with like 
uh, turn base. I don't, I don't know what this is. And again, it looks like shit. It, it even back then, you know, Final Fantasy VIII came out a couple years later, or even a year later, I think. Final Fantasy VIII looks miles better than this game, just because there's no like chibi version of Cloud, or well, in this case, Squall. But there's no chibi versions of the characters. They're all like the battle versions of Squall are the same ones you see running around when you're exploring the world. Um, even more wild in Seven is the fact that like it's not even like it's just the chibi and then the battle and then the cutscene stuff. Like it's so inconsistent all across the board. Some of the CG cutscenes even use like the chibi models of the characters, but then some of them use like the the more traditional anime looking models. Uh, you know, I assume there's like different departments or studios or whatever doing different cutscenes, and they're given different directions or something changed midway through development, and they're just like, ah, fuck it, we already got that made, just keep it. Um, I don't know. It's very wild to look at. Um, a thing. I will also just briefly plug here, if you're really interested in, like, the history of, like, Final Fantasy VII, or not even the history, but, like, its legacy and, like, what it means to people and, like, why Remake is such a big deal, check, check out the uh, Tim Rogers video over at the Action Button YouTube uh, channel on um, Final Fantasy VII Remake. He, it, well, for one, Tim Rogers is, like, one of the most interesting dudes ever and makes really 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 good video essays <laughs> they're all like six hours minimum you don't need to watch all six hours if this is a topic that interests you just check out the first like 20 minutes of his final fantasy 7 remake video um he tells a really funny anecdote about like he was in japan at the time when final fantasy 12 was coming out and the, the, the president of square at the time like handed the first sold copy of final fantasy 12 to a fan and let the fans speak, and all the fans said was, please remake Final Fantasy VII. Like, yeah, I, like, like I said, I think the narrative nowadays is, yeah, Final Fantasy VII, that game is fucking great. Uh, it has a lot of problems, and its inconsistent visuals and, and presentation are a huge part of that. Um, to give you the kind of context as to why seven got so many like sequels and now remakes and whatever anyway let's get into some of these other final fantasy 7 games the first one uh as far as i'm aware the first final fantasy 7 spin-off or you know what this was actually all under a banner of uh the name compilation of final fantasy 7 so let's let's call it that the first compilation of final fantasy 7 game was before crisis final fantasy 7 it's a 2004 um episodic mobile RPG. Um, you're playing as a member of the Turks, which are like, it's, it's never clearly established across all these games. What exactly the Turks are there. It seems like they're kind of positioned as like the hitmen or like assassins or like the, the dudes during doing the dirty work for Shinra. Shinra being the like electric power corporation that kind of runs the planet and created like the energy crisis in this world and it, it, they created Midgar and uh, yeah, they're, they're bad. They're the bad guys or they're, they're collectively one of the bad guys in this world. Um, so yeah, the Turks, you're playing as a new member of the Turks and yeah, you're, it, it's a prequel to Final Fantasy seven. And I think it bleeds into some of the events in Final Fantasy seven. I say, I think, because this was, it never got released outside Japan, you know, back in 2004, 
mobile phone games just weren't nearly a thing. You know, even like four years later at best, you could play like Sonic 2 on a flip phone or whatever, but uh, it probably ran like shit. And yeah, we didn't have anything like this at the time. Um, the main takeaways from this, from so I've watched like essays on all of these games. I haven't rewatched them. I'm probably going to get some stuff wrong. We're going to try and keep this as short as possible anyway. So only like seven hours long. But um, the main takeaway story-wise from this, I guess two things. Um, so in Final Fantasy VII, when you first start, you're, you're helping this group called Avalanche, which they're basically eco-terrorists, I guess. Uh, I guess they would call themselves like eco-activists or whatever. Um, but you're helping them blow up... Uh, um, like power plants in whatever it, it uh, in Midgar uh, to keep the planet going because they are sucking the light, the literal life energy out of the planet. So you're blowing up reactors to keep the planet going. Um, in Final Fantasy VII, it's implied that like Barrett, who is the one of your party members, the big dude looks like Mister T and he's got a gun arm, which is cool. Uh, that he is, like, the founder of Avalanche and, like, all the members are just, like, Barrett and Tifa, Biggs, Wedge, and Jesse or whatever. Uh, I don't know if that's, like, a translation error or a localization choice or if they just retconned it later. But in Before Crisis, it is established that Avalanche is much bigger and much more organized than just, like, Barrett's ragtag crew. And that Shinra is, like, partially at war with Avalanche or whatever. Um... Probably the most important thing I would say, again, to my limited understanding of this game, is that the President Shinra's son, Rufus, uh, he is leaking information, confidential information from Shinra to Avalanche in this game. Um, I think that's going to come into play in a big part in Rebirth and or the final remake trilogy entry. Um, it seems from his small limited appearance in remake Rufus definitely seems like he's got shit going on I think there's stuff implying that his mother was maybe um or he has ancestry that were ancients maybe we'll talk about ancients later basically they're just like the the, the original race of people that lived on earth or whatever. whatever um yeah not much to say on before crisis I think I still talked for like four minutes about this shit let's go on to the next one uh, Final Fantasy VII Advent Children from 2005. Uh, this one is maybe the most infamous on this list, or this of, the, of this compilation of Final Fantasy VII. Uh, it's a movie, and it's bad. <laughs> it's real, real bad. Uh, it's set two years after the end of Final Fantasy VII. The world has not... like it's, it, it's trying to repair itself a little bit, but things are still pretty shitty. There's a sickness going around called Geostigma, which I think is like, I'm not 100% sure and I don't remember. Maybe I should have taken even more notes than I have. Um, but I think it's caused by like something to do with like the life stream. So in Final Fantasy VII's universe, like when you die, your soul goes to the life stream. And that life stream is what Shinra is sucking out of the planet to make electricity, basically. So it is literally souls that there's... They're sucking out of the planet. They're about to get this. The earth is about to get its soul sucked is what I'm trying to say. Um, so I think there's some, so there's something wrong with these people that are getting a 
afflicted with geostigma. I think it has something to do with the live stream. God, this is dorky and bad. Uh, um, so there's this geostigma, and again, I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's 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 a painful disease. I think it kills people. Like, black ooze comes out of them, like their heads or arms or whatever. Cloud has geostigma and it afflicts him sometimes. I think it's supposed to be like a metaphor for like mourning and, and whatever whatever. This game or this movie's themes aren't worth exploring that in depth. Um from a plot point of view, I think the the most important thing well, okay, there's actually a lot here. We'll dive into one section in a minute, but uh surface level, Sephiroth, who was killed at the end of seven, can manifest like again, we've established that spirits still live in in the life stream unless they get their soul sucked. Um, so Sephiroth, who has a very strong will and a very powerful person, he can still influence stuff happening in the life stream even after he's dead. And I believe Geostigma is coming from his influence or Genova's influence or both. I don't whatever. Um, and in this case, Sephiroth manifests like these three kids. I forget what they're called. It doesn't matter. They all look like weird little mini Sephiroths, kind of. Uh, and they run around and cause mischief. They're kidnapping kids with geostigma and doing all this shit. But yeah, their Sephiroths will manifest. And at one point, one of them literally turns into Sephiroth. And then Cloud kills him and then turns back into normal form. And then he dies. I don't know. Um... That's never really made clear in the movie because the movie is bad, as I said before. Not just the writing, but also the dub is ridiculously bad. Um, they got a lot of Hollywood actors who had never done voice acting before, classic. That's not great, but really it's more so the localization choices. Specifically, uh, they keep saying dilly-dally-shilly-shally in this movie. And it's presented as if it has like a lot of like gravitas, like a lot of dramatic weight. The phrase dilly dally shilly shally. Um, I assume that like in the Japanese original, there's like some very succinct like Japanese phrase that that this is meant to be some kind of stand in for. It doesn't work <laughs> like, you know, a child gets kidnapped and like you're dying and, and the world is going to end. And then your girlfriend is just like dilly dally shilly shally. Dilly dally shilly shally. It, it's horrible. What is most interesting about Advent Children and like what ties the most into remake. So there was a series of novellas that were like published alongside Advent Children in Japan. Again, never released outside of the West. So they've never been officially translated or out, outside of Japan in the West. They've never been officially translated. Um, not only that, originally there was like three of them, I think. And then a few years after this, they kind of remastered Advent Children as Advent Children Complete. And then they wrote more novellas to release alongside of it. Uh, and this is all collected, I believe it's called On the Way to a Smile. It was all, all these novellas were collected into On the Way to a Smile, set between the original game and Advent Children. So I don't know much about like the in-depth stories here. Each novella is following a different character and like what they're going through or whatever. I know one of them was made into like a short OVA. I think it was about the orphan Denzel. 
the most important one going forward it establishes like it's told from the perspective of Aerith, kind of, I believe, but it establishes that Aerith and Sephiroth, like their wills are kind of battling it out in the life stream and that Aerith knows that she isn't going to be able to control Sephiroth. Not just that, but like other characters from Final Fantasy VII that died, like Biggs, Wedge, and Jesse, they are all also in the life stream and trying to help Aerith contain Sephiroth or whatever. The, the main point of all this is that Sephiroth, he still has an influence even beyond death. Um, and that comes into play greatly in Remake. But before we get to Remake, we got a couple more things to talk about. Uh, Dirge of Cerberus, Final Fantasy VII, from 2006 for the PlayStation 2. Uh, it's a third-person shooter starring Vincent Valentine, which... Vincent Valentine was like the really, really, really like edge lordy party member, optional party member of Final Fantasy VII. Um, he's like a vampire dude with like a red cloak wrapped around him. He's got a shotgun and he can transform into monsters. And he's really quiet and, and demure. Not, I guess demure isn't the right word, but uh, very emo. He was in love with who goes on to become Sephiroth's mom. Um, he was a member of the Turks. Not really worth going into beyond that. I've never played this. I don't know anyone that's played this. From all accounts, this is a horrible game. It doesn't sound like it did anything interesting with the lore either. Uh, the only thing interesting it really established, from my understanding, is uh, the existence of Deep Ground, which was like... I don't know if this is, if Deep Ground is referring to the actual... A unit of like study or the actual people who were experimented on but deep ground and deep ground soldiers or whatever are like humans that were experimented on and as the name not so subtly implies they are like deep underground in a lab underneath like midgar like it's whatever uh in remake you you go there and you fight some of them uh yeah it's not that interesting there's a character here named like Weiss. I don't know what he does. Um, he is an optional boss in the remake, Final Fantasy VII remake DLC. Uh, but we are, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> this is already going on too long, and we're not even halfway through. Um, it's bad. Don't worry about it. Uh, next, Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII from 2007. It's a PSP action RPG prequel. Um, it's set like. I don't know, what is it, like five, six-ish years before Final Fantasy VII? Uh, in this, you are playing as Zack Fair, who is a character that's pretty important to Cloud, but didn't really get any meaningful screen time in the original Seven. Uh, Cloud, if you don't know, Cloud has like a dissociative identity disorder on top of like Mako poisoning and all this other shit. And through a series of circumstances and, and self-loathing and whatever else, he subconsciously like adopts Zack's personality, Zack being dead at that point of the game. So Crisis Core is Zack's story, and he dated Aerith back when they were younger, before way before Cloud knew her. Um, and yeah, like I said, you only see him in like two flashback scenes in Final Fantasy VII, and one of them is very optional and very well hidden. Um, this was remastered last year. I think it was Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII Reunion. 
um, which is interesting from like a timeline perspective. And I guess we're going to save this till remake as to why it's interesting. But Zack dies. I think I said that already. Um, but at the end of remake, there is a timeline where he did not die that we're going to dive into. But yeah. I guess Final Fantasy VII Remake, we can just dive into that. Because I honestly didn't realize there was that big of a gap between Crisis Core and Remake. Um, this is probably the most interesting one to talk about. But again, I don't know how much I want to get into this. I don't know what the interest level is. Uh, but yeah, it's for the PS4 and PC, and I guess PS5 now. It is like an action RPG hybrid kind of thing. Reimagining of... The first chunk of the Final Fantasy VII story, uh, and by that I mean like just the the section of Final Fantasy VII where you're playing in Midgar, which in the original Final Fantasy VII is only like five hours at most, um, but in the remake they stretched it out into like a forty-hour Midgar section, um, and as I kind of was implying a little bit at the end of the Crisis Core section. You know, as the name implies, it is like build as a remake, and I think that's most people accept that at face value, but it's really not. It's kind of a sequel to all these things I just said. Um, it's doing like a Neon Genesis Evangelion thing of like, yeah, we're going back to the past, but now things are different, and you're just going to accept it. But also, it's we're not retconning it or remaking it. This is just an alternate timeline. Um, but yeah, this is in a lot of ways just a direct sequel to Advent Children Crisis Core and Dirge of Cerberus. There are elements of all of those games in here and like new things in the story that are now pushed into remake. And like I said earlier, perhaps the thing it's like most importantly a remake or not a remake, a sequel to is On the Way to a Smile, that specific novella about Aerith and Sephiroth kind of battling it out in the live stream. Um so I don't know this for sure. I don't know. Square always does like these things. They release these things called Ultimanias where they like go real in depth into the lore and, and talk to developers and story writers about the game and kind of dive into things that the games themselves only gloss over or don't even touch at all, but are heavily implied. I don't know how much of this is confirmed, but this is, this is the case, even if it's not confirmed. Uh, basically, Sephiroth, his spirit from the original Final Fantasy VII timeline in Advent Children has traveled back in time to, to the beginning of Final Fantasy VII. And he's trying to, like, do things differently and right his own mistakes. He, he, he did a lot of dumb things in VII that led to his own downfall. Um... The planet knows that this is happening. Like, the, the, the planet has some kind of consciousness. Even in the original Final Fantasy VII, it wakes up these giant mechs to come and protect it. Though it doesn't do a good job of that. The mechs just kind of roam around and, like, destroy a couple things. But they don't... You would think Sephiroth is the main problem, and they don't seem to care about Sephiroth. Or, or you know, Shinra. They also don't seem to care that much about Shinra until the end of the game, and then they blow some shit up, I guess. Anyway, the planet has like a, a consciousness to some degree and it releases these like kind of ghostly Dementor looking figures that are like the Arbiters of Fate, which if you've seen trailers for this game, you've probably seen these. Um, 
they are just trying to keep things on the path of the original Final Fantasy VII. The planet is kind of like your conservative shithead uncle at Thanksgiving. He's like, no, 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 no. We gotta keep. We gotta do things the way we did before. We have to keep doing this, otherwise Sephiroth could win. Um, like there is no other alternative. Uh, what is also hinted at is that Aerith. Don't know if she's like getting direct communication from her own self in this in this alternate from this alternate timeline that this Sephiroth is from. God, I'm so sorry for all this. Um, that so we got dead alternate timeline Aerith is communicating with this current Aerith and trying to fill her in on things that are happening and what she can do. Um, it definitely seems like Aerith is getting at the very least, maybe not direct knowledge, but like flashes of knowledge that let her make decisions that she otherwise they maybe wouldn't be making also not implied but straight up shown that cloud is getting these flashes like in in the original game cloud gets these kind of like high-pitched shrill noises happening to him and he's getting like a voice inside of him talking to him which later on turns out to be his like real personality that's buried beneath all this other shit but it's replaced here, at least mostly, with, like, flashes of the future. So, like, for instance, my favorite scene in Final Fantasy VII Remake is when shortly after Cloud and Aerith first meet, and Aerith is going to help you get back to Sector Seven, and she starts walking away from you, and the, the camera is at this very specific tilted angle, and, like, the colors are a very specific, like, soft blue um, as she walks down this path. And Cloud gets this 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 brief vision attack, um, and then a tear is coming out of his eye, and he doesn't understand why he's crying or whatever. But yeah, it's framed that it, that frame of the shot and everything uh, exactly as the last time Cloud really gets to see Aerith, which is her communicating in the original Final Fantasy VII, which is her communicating to him in a dream that she's going off to do something that will help them beat Sephiroth. And then by the time Cloud catches up to her, Sephiroth stabs her. So it's like the last time Cloud gets to have a conversation with Aerith. And he's getting like a vision of that from the future. Somehow. We don't know if it's from the planet or Aerith herself. Whatever. Whew. Hold on. Let me take a sip of water. So anyway. This is all to say, more succinctly that Final Fantasy VII Remake is less a remake and it's like a reimagining slash sequel to the entire like Final Fantasy VII saga. Um, and as of right now, like, yeah, it ends kind of with, like, I, you kill the Arbiters of Fate. So, like, there is no more, like, planet trying to steer you on a guided path anymore. Which is, I think, supposed to also be symbolic in uh, fourth wall breaking from the perspective of the developers saying like, hey, we're going to maybe do more of our own thing going forward. And also, you know, the next game, you're not in Midgar, you're in this, these more open environments and whatever. Um, yeah, so like you literally kill fate. <laughs> uh, Sephiroth is revived. You fight him, but he leaves. Uh, there are... To my understanding, or my hunch, there's two Sephiroths running around in the, the world of Remake and Rebirth. Um, and at the very, very, very end of Remake, you also see this alternate timeline 
where Zack survives, did not get murdered by other soldiers right outside of Midgar with Cloud in tow. Um, and then at the end of the DLC for Final Fantasy VII, I think it was called Integrade, the end of the DLC for Final Fantasy VII Remake, Integrade, uh, you see a little more, and it seems like the timeline Zack might be in most of the original Final Fantasy VII crew is dead. Like, it seems like there are people mourning at Aerith's church. And in the trailer for Rebirth, you see, like, dead versions of Tifa, Barrett, Red 13, and Aerith. Um, I get the sense that that is not, like, that's not, like, a fake death put on by Shinra. That's, like, in Zack's timeline, they are all dead. And maybe Zack and Cloud are going to be on their own path in that version of events. Um, I also kind of have to imagine that this is going to end up at the end of this trilogy of remakes. Um, like the power of friendship <laughs> will prevail and Zack and Cloud will like team up across timelines to kill Sephiroth for good or whatever. Uh, that's my hunch with it. Okay. I swear we're getting near the end. Um, and like I said, Jim, I will recap all of this in a more succinct form that actually answers your question. So, Final Fantasy VII, the first soldier is a mobile battle royale game. Uh, I'm sure there's some kind of lore attached to it, but who fucking cares? They already discontinued the game. It actually, okay, it did look kind of interesting. I never would have bothered playing it anyway. It's a dumb mobile game, but hey. I guess you gotta hand it to them. They made a Final Fantasy VII Battle Royale thing, I guess. And then this year, in fact, just a couple weeks ago, we got Final Fantasy VII Ever Crisis, which is a mobile gotcha game that's also kind of a Final Fantasy VII remake. Uh, it's kind of like reimagining like key scenes from like the entire saga, everything we just talked about, the original Advent Children, Crisis Core, blah, blah, blah. It's, like, all here, and it's presented in this really cool form of, like, the characters are, like, more chibi, but they don't, they look way better than they did in the PS1 game. Like, it looks, yeah, like, like, a very clean PS2 aesthetic, kind of, except for the battles and the cutscenes, which are, look like remake style. Um, I played it, like, I don't know, I played, like, 20 minutes of it. I don't think it's something I'm gonna fuck with, honestly. Uh, it seems cool for what it is, but also, yeah, it's a gotcha game. They want you to pump, like, hundreds of dollars into it, preferably. Um, I'm sure there is lore stuff going on here. In fact, I think the icon of the game and, like, latest trailers for the game showed, like, young Sephiroth with, like, short hair. Uh, this time he's got short hair, ladies. Um, yeah. I don't know much about it. I think it is coming to Steam. When it comes to Steam, maybe I'll check it out. Or if it comes to PlayStation or something. I just don't want to play things on my phone, generally speaking. Um, and then lastly, we have Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, which is coming out, what is that, February of next year, I think. And yeah, it's taking us from right after the end of the Midgar section of Final Fantasy VII to the end of Disc 1 of Final Fantasy VII, which is City of the Ancients or whatever it's called. Um... Which is interesting that the developers confirmed that that is where it's ending. Again, spoilers, that is where Aerith dies in the original Final Fantasy VII. I'm guessing things will be a fair bit different, 
but I also am guessing that Aerith will still die. I feel like it kind of does a disservice to her character um, to not have her be a sacrifice, to not sacrifice herself. I don't know if that, I hope that doesn't sound like weird or sexist or something, but like that that is kind of the point of the character is that she sacrifices herself for the greater good. And for her, it's less of a sacrifice because she lives on through the live stream and everything. Um, so anyway, I think that's all we really need to get into. Again, I would love to talk more about like the implications of like Rufus and stuff. Like I watched this no joke, like eight hour lore series just about remake and like implications there. This is years ago, well before we got any news on rebirth. Uh, and this dude went so in depth that he was even analyzing the coins that Rufus Shinra, uh, flips um it's wild and and that is actually so when final fantasy 7 remake came out i played it wasn't super into it i think i talked about this last week uh, but i was on furlough because of covid so i was like whatever i'll play it again on hard mode between playing it on hard mode and then watching this lore series it made me very excited for where this shit is going <laughs> in a weird way uh i hope the stuff that I presented or talked about, it's greatly, greatly abridged. And, I, and if you've never played any of these things, it probably makes no fucking sense. But if you want to hear me talk about dorky shit that I like for like half an hour or whatever, I guess you got that. Uh, specifically for Jim, let's go over one more time um, what all of these things are in a very brief and succinct manner. So Final Fantasy VII, we don't need to go over that. That's the original game. Before Crisis, Final Fantasy VII, mobile RPG, episodic, never got released anywhere outside Japan. You don't need to worry about it. Probably you've never heard of it. Final Fantasy VII, Advent Children is the very, very, very bad movie sequel to Final Fantasy VII. Uh, it does have big lore implications for modern Final Fantasy VII stuff with Remake and Rebirth. Um, but again, I doubt you've heard about this recently. Unless I've complained about it recently. <laughs> uh, Dirge of Cerberus, Final Fantasy VII. A third-person shooter starring Vincent Valentine for the PlayStation 2. You don't need to know anything about it, I don't think. It's bad. The only thing, I wonder if they remaster or remake this. Uh, Vincent is a fan-favorite character. Of course he is. Um, I just don't know that they view it as worth it. Crisis Core was always pretty well-liked. And I like I didn't play it until the remaster last year, and yeah, I liked it pretty well for what it was. No one has ever liked Dirge of Cerberus, so maybe they don't view it as worth it. I don't know. I also wouldn't be surprised. The DLC for Seven Remake starred Yuffie, uh, which she wasn't even introduced in Remake yet at that point. I wouldn't be surprised if other characters get their own standalone DLC uh, between uh, Rebirth and whatever the final trilogy entry is called. Uh, and I feel like Vincent or Sid probably make the most sense for that. Uh, but yeah, Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII. That is a PSP action RPG prequel set before Seven. It stars Zach Fair. Um, if you want to, you can play it on Switch. It's a very good port. I had fun with it. It's nothing amazing. Don't go in expecting something really cool. But it was neat. I don't know how good it would be if you've never played Final Fantasy VII to jump in here. But for what it is, it's pretty cool. It's pretty repetitive. It's very much a action RPG from 2007 in terms of how grindy and repetitive it is, but it's neat. Then we've got 7 Remake, which I'm not even going to try and summarize beyond 
it is yeah, a remake of the first few hours of Final Fantasy VII, but also a sequel in disguise. We talked about it in depth. I wrote about it in depth in Critical Diversions. You can read it, read about it there if you're interested. Um, yeah, Final Fantasy VII: The First Soldier, mobile battle royale game. You're never going to remember it exists. Probably you'll forget within five minutes of this podcast. Final Fantasy VII Ever Crisis, the 2023 mobile gotcha game that is also kind of a remake of Final Fantasy VII, just in truncated form. Seems neat for what it is, but don't worry about it. And lastly, Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, that is the second entry in the remake trilogy. So basically, we've got remake is remake part one, rebirth is remake part two, and there will be a third game that also starts with RE that will be Remake Part 3. Um, you can really kind of boil this down to Final Fantasy VII, Final Fantasy VII Remake, Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, Final Fantasy VII Re... Blah, blah, blah. That's kind of all you really have to worry about. Um, so I hope this wasn't too much of a waste of your time if you listened to the whole thing and my rambling and incoherent yelling about Final Fantasy VII lore. Um, but yeah, I think that's it. I think that's all we had to talk about. Um, I will say, I I slubbed quite a couple times, quite a couple, quite a few times while making this episode of the podcast, and I, I even threw out like 30 minutes of work because I was so frustrated. So contrary to what I said earlier about these being effortless and fun to make, this was a lot of work, uh, partially down to my own misspeaks and whatever. Anyway, thank you all for tuning in. Um, I guess, hey, if you have questions or topics you want me to talk about on these episodes, let me know. This is, it's Despite what I just said, this was still pretty fun. I like having an excuse to do this. Give me something to talk about that isn't just news or games. I would do this every week, uh, talking about a different topic. Uh, like I said, I think we're going to talk about, or not talk about, but do some critical diversions out loud readings probably next week. We're going to do at least one um, as long as it goes well and I'm okay with the audio quality. But anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you for the question slash request, Jim. We'll talk to you later, hopefully next week with the Gunbrilla, and we'll probably do another one of these too. See ya. Bye. Bye.